Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions. And I'm in the middle of editing right now, of course, on uh, Lady Hyde and taking care of that. But uh, in the meantime and in between time, I am here today to talk to you and to welcome you to episode 88, film 88, Je de Pato. Uh, and that is the French theatrical title of the film titled I Burn Everywhere. Um, let's see. Yeah, also, too, like mine, the version I watched, they had it translated as I Burn All Over. So I'm not sure. I mean, it's all over and everywhere is kind of the same, but I'm curious what is the exact uh, verbiage or what. So, yeah, so. I don't know. Parto. I wonder if that's everywhere or all over. Parto. Out. Over. Yeah, I'm thinking it's all over. But anyway. So yeah. Je brûle de Parto. French theatrical title of I Burn Everywhere. Uh, France, 1978. Let me remove my reading spectacles uh, so I can see closer. Hold on. All right. So. We have the alternative titles for this film. Uh, the Belgian-Dutch language title of I Burn Everywhere. Ik ben overal heat. Uh, also, the French alternative video title is Chalure, Je Brûle de Parto. Then we also have the pre-release title. The original thought, the original uh, shooting, which usually is an interesting title that he does. Like for me, I always shoot. I always mentioned uh, neither shooting stars instead of the Virgin Among the Living Dead. So for this one, it's uh, Rape of the Nymphettes, which is really interesting. It's more like uh, of a lyrical, scary fairy tale compared to I Burn Everywhere, which is a more of a physical action title, you know, to describe a feeling instead of a idea. So yeah. Uh, okay, uh, Dossier's Menuis, shooting title, Dossier on Minors. And that's more like a, a Virgin Report or something, or like something like that, like a schoolgirl report films that were popular at the time in Germany and, and uh, the type of um, film where they present it as like a documentary and then they get away with using the X-rated footage and such. So, all right, well, once again, since this is the third and a third of the... Uh, Hotel Trilogy. This is still with um, um, Robert D. Nessel, and of course, so that means that we have his production company, Comptour Francois de Film Production out of Paris, and uh, they were also the theatrical distributor. And uh, also, the census was also in Belgium, it had a second distributor, that's uh, Le Film du Dragon. So, yeah, out of Belgium. Uh, before we go any further, give, of course, credit like I always do. Uh, the information that I'm pulling for all this is out of the Volume 2 uh, by Stephen Thrower, Jess Franco. This one titled Flowers of Perversion, the Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 2. So, all right. Uh, let's see. Timeline. Shooting date on this is uh, early 19... 19- 78. French visa issued. Got an X certificate, and that was uh, February 7th of 1979. 
and Paris it played on April 11th, 1979. All right, theatrical running time, uh, France, 82 minutes, and the video running time converted, uh, France, MVP, which is the print I watched, MVP, of course, is uh, Monty Video Production, and um, see, I have that information, it's not in the book. They just have MVP, and that's a CCAM VHS, and that's converted to 84 minutes, 28 seconds. Even though the DVD-R uh, rip of that VHS version ran at, uh, I think mine was, let's see, what did I write it down as? 78 minutes, so four minutes off. Maybe it's just a uh, black screen, who knows. All right, uh, director is on this, of course, why we're here, Jess Franco. But since this is a X-rated film and the third of uh, third for Dinesel, he is Clifford Brown, of course, the named after the jazz musician. Uh, Frank, uh, Frank, the French print, or Jacques Garcia in the Italian video cover. Yeah, I think on mine it says uh, I forgot what it says on mine. Jess Frank or something. Oh no, no it says Clifford Brown. Uh, writer Jess Franco, producers Robert Dinesel. And they have a different producer online too. I should. I'll talk about that on the uh, review portion. Uh, director of photography, camera operator, of course, Jess Franco. So yeah, he does the directing, writing, camera operator, and the director of photography. So he tells himself what to do when he's shooting, and uh, that gives himself two credits there. Nice. Well, yeah, you, you know, you plan your setups and then you execute. So he is doing two jobs. Uh, music, Daniel J. White, which is a really cool soundtrack on this actually. Uh, editor Claude Gross, dubbing Studios Barcadet, Laboratory CTM Ginny Velias, Kodak Eastman Color, produced by Comptour Francois du Film Production out of Paris. All right, cast <clears throat> the mighty, beautiful goddess herself, Brigitte Lahi, as Lorna. And what's cool is Lorna. That name struck a chord with me because I always know Lorna as being a Russ Meyer fan. I think Lorna is a movie called Lorna, of course, with Lorna. And then there was a Super Lorna in one of his other films. I think it was uh, Super Vixens, I believe, something like that. And, uh, and I think he used Lorna in another film. And then Hollywood used it too. But I was like, wait, I just did a podcast where he used the name Lorna. And I kept thinking, which film was it? Which film was it? And I was like, I think it's this, this one, this. And then, and then I was like, yeah, it has to be. So sure enough, Lorna is the lead character also in a little film called Succubus, a.k.a. Necronomicon. And uh, it's cool that he had Jeanine Renault played uh, Lorna in that film. And then he has Brigitte Lahi play Lorna in this film. And uh, yeah, they're both uh, uh, killers, you know, but different hair colors. So yeah, we have Brigitte Lehi as Lorna. Oh yeah, also too, before I go any further, uh, this film is going to be available soon on Blu-ray. So um, I didn't pick it up. I'm going to pick it up soon, I think. But what it is, is they put out a book on Brigitte Lehi and uh, it has since been made. But before that, there was like a crowdfunding deal that you could do and different levels of... Um, of purchase and one of the levels was to get a blu-ray copy of this film so i'm hoping that which i assume which is always not a good thing to do but i i i i presume that they will you know put it out by itself as a standalone blu-ray or with another blu-ray or something and then i'll just picture 
buy those because I wasn't interested in buying the book because uh, I think it was a little too much out of my price range. But anyway, it still looked like a really cool book. But all right, back to the cast. Of course, we have Brigitte Leahy as Lorna. And then uh, the rest of the cast fills out as people that have been in the last two films, which were Cocktail Special and uh, they do everyone. What was it called? Uh, yeah, Cocktail Special and then um, Elise Fontet. They do everything, yeah. So, so yeah, the rest of the cast is pretty much a lot of the carryovers from them. And it's kind of cool if you watch these these three in a row, Cocktail Special, They Do Everyone, and uh, I, I Burn Everywhere which is kind of interesting, those two titles back-to-back. Uh, it's cool to see which characters the different actors play in each of the three films. And sometimes they're opposites, and sometimes the pairings are really cool. So I'll go on to explain. Uh, so you have um, Didier Abra as Lorna's boyfriend. He's in an earlier film. Uh, you have Susan Hemingway returning as Ginny Goldstone, um, and she played the young wife in the last film. And in this one, she's uh, the the main uh, person that they kidnap and everything, the virgin, basically. Goldstone, you know. Uh, okay, then you have Martine Fleet as Maria, the madam. She's the intermediary between Lorna and Flora. And in the last film, uh, she was... Um, I forgot who she was. Okay, so she was... Uh, Sarah, so she was the lady that put the ad out for the sex uh, partner, the tall, uh, dark-haired woman. And then, uh, yeah, so she's here as kind of one of the heels in the film. Um, and then you have Adia Vargas, of course, who's in, like, tons of his films, the Dietrich ones, like I mentioned, Slaves and and uh, the Barbara Dolls, I believe, and then the, uh, Greta and all those. But uh, here she is uh, a victim, basically. She's not... Okay, and then the last two films, she was, uh, of course, um, Martine, the 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 main lead in Cocktail Special, and then in the last film, she was a maid, and in this one, she's um, Maria, a sex slave brought by boat with Ginny. She's one of the leads in this as well, but she's definitely one of the victims of the of the cartel. Uh, speaking of cartel, you have Mel Rodrigo plays Robert Flora's br- brother, uh, so. And we haven't got to Flora yet. See where do I skip over Flora? Oh no, okay, interesting. So yeah, so we have Robert. He's Flora's brother, and the male brothel runner. Okay, so he's the uh, in Cocktail Special. He's the guy that plays the guitar at the orgy, and then in the last film, he was the kind of the butler or the bell the bellhop. Um, and so in this one, he's. Uh, Flora's brother, and Flora is played by Benny Sousa, T-O-U-X-A, and she is Eugenie uh, in the first film, like the the virgin and that, so in here she's the main bad person who exploits this young virgin, and in the first film she was the virgin Eugenie, so it's funny how they flip flip the rules on her. So in this one she's the pretty much the lead heel, and uh, her brother, of course, is the guy that plays the guitar in the first film, blah, blah, blah. And then you have uh, Marius Clavier returning, another one that returns as uh, Madame Flora's manservant. And he played Christian in Cocktail Special, uh, Martine's brother. So, uh, and then in here, he, and then here he's basically Eugenie's servant. And in the other film, he was the one who 
raped Eugenie and everything and pulled everything over on her. It's funny. And then in the last film, he was uh, one of the uh, men that was in The Three Men. And then you also have the guy in the mustache that was in Cocktail Special. And in here, he's one of the guys that hangs out in the orgies and uh, kind of has sex with uh, um, Maurice Clavier and uh, um, Susan Hemingway and uh, Benny Sousa in a scene. But yeah, so it's interesting to see all these same people, the same crew in all three of these films and playing different roles. So I always like to see that. And then you have uh, uncredited uh, Esther Studer from past Franco films who comes here untitled and you see her on the slave boat uh, they kidnap the women and put them on these mattresses and that she's one of the women writhing around when the poison gas gets pumped in or the uh, um, let's see what would it be called I'm kind of naive with this it'd be like a almost like a psychosexual type of nerve agent that's being pumped in through the uh, I don't think there's such a thing almost like a laughing gas but with gets you all turned on and stuff so Alrighty, well, that's that on the credits and all that. Okay, so now we're going to go into the production notes. Initially announced to the French trade paper, Le Film Francois, uh, Francais, aus ers Rap de Nymphites, Rape of the Nymphites, in a poster advertised dated August 25th, 1978, Je Brûlé de Partout, emerged as the best of the three Franco films shot for Robert E. Nacelle in the early months of 1978. Franco's legendary good relations with his female leading ladies temporarily deserted him. Brigitte Lehi wrote in her 1987 autobiography, Moi, Les Scandalous, that Franco badgered her to stay and shoot a second, extra hardcore film with him. When she declined, he accused her of playing the star and sent her packing back to Paris on the next available flight. Note, in 1986, she gave an interview that puts a slightly different spin on the story. Actually, there was a dispute between Jess and I on a porno movie set. I wanted to return to Paris for personal reasons, and Jess did not approve or did not appreciate my departure, which was certainly a little rushed. But it had nothing to do with our work. All right. So here is Stephen Thrower's review, before I give my review later after the bumper. <clears throat> With the opening credits spoken out loud over a disco dancing scene, and also, too, I was going to mention this in my review, but yeah, I think it's Jess Franco and maybe uh, Lena doing the voices. But yeah, I was like listening back, because because Lena did the last film, and just because she's not in this film doesn't mean she wasn't on set. So yeah, okay, so... With the opening credits spoken out loud over a disco dancing scene, Gibrelet de Porto seems at first to be gearing up for something jaunty and jokey along the lines of 1975's Midnight Party. However, this is not what hap- transpires. From the first sexual tryst, a threesome involving statuesque Brigitte Lehi, shy Susan Hemingway, and sneering Didier Abois, a stifling downbeat mood descends upon the film. Said to have been shot in six days, Gibrelet de Partout suffers from the hastiness of such a daunting schedule, but against the odds feels very much like a genuine sex drama and not simply a directionalist porno scuffle. If horrors are a bit if the horrors are a bit repetitive and the acting mostly functional, there's still enough here to make this obscurity worth seeking out. Unlike the vapid Elise Fontaut and the disappointing cocktail special, its nearest neighbors chronologically and gen- generically, Gibrelet de Partout has enough going for it 
to make one wish for a pristine Blu-ray release one day. And like I mentioned, that is very soon upon us. All right, Fans of Nymphette, Susan Hemingway, and those who worship at the shrine of French porn superstar Brigitte Leahy, which is me, will find plenty to cherish in this dark and disturbing take on the grim underbelly of the 70s sex industry. Others, especially those unfamiliar with the director's work, will struggle to find much worth in what can seem basically a rather depressing French sex film. Despite its redeeming features, Gébrilly de Partout requires commitment from the viewer, who should preferably have seen rather a lot of just Franco movies before trying this one. Oh yeah, I forgot to. One last credit I forgot to give, uh, which is silly. Um, also, too, in this we have the returning character of Al Pereira. Uh, but unfortunately, he's like just more in the background, and you just see him kind of like following people. He really has no dialogue, and then he's just, I don't know, it's, it's kind of silly. But, but and this guy is played by Jean Ferrer, which is also the name of Andre the Giant, but yeah, different spelling, I think, of the last name. Alrighty, back to the uh, review. Gibraltar um, Partout is, is predicated on a great nightmarish porno concept. An aphrodisiac gas. That's the word I was thinking of, aphrodisiac. An aphrodisiac gas that turns unwilling victims into sex slaves. This gives Franco the chance to explore the negative aspects of desire, picking up on a thread from Shining Sex and Blue Rita, showing sensual pleasures overriding the individual's will and making them vulnerable to manipulation. The first great scene occurs when Jenny, drugged by Lorna and her boyfriend, is transported to shores unknown in the hold of a ship, barely able to understand where she is. There's a rattled junkie propped against her to one side, and a predatory older woman, Blue Rita's Martine Fleety, oh no, that was her, uh, reaching over to finger her pussy on the other. And the rattled junkie is uh, Esther Studer. So, um, Welcome to the slave trade, pretty girl. Uh, the most memorable image of the film is of desperate women imprisoned nude in a shabby mattress-stoned basement, writhing helplessly on the floor whilst aphrodisiac gas is pumped into the room through a pipe in the ceiling. Franco films the scene from overhead, capturing an hellish tableau from the nightmare of endless desire in a style that brings to mind the cluttered, wriggling fleshscapes of Bosch or the cover of Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland Gone Haywire. <laughs> Oh, please, I'm burning everywhere, one woman moans, quoting the film's title. Yeah, that was uh, uh, Martine Fleety, I think was her name. No, it was um, Adia Vargas that says that. Um, and, rig and wriggling frantically among the other victims in a tangle of arms, legs, and sweaty pussies. All right, nothing wrong with that. Actually, it's a beautiful thing. For a director who spent the best part of the 70s making a slew of pornographic and semi-pornographic movies exploring every nook and cranny of voyeuristic passion, such a theme suggests self-doubt and awareness that, while well, little of what you fancy does you good is a stupid conservative motto, repeated exposure can bring its own problems. Impulsive behavior, diminishing returns, creeping dissatisfaction. Very insightful. Uh, 
It's no accident that any ship's hold Franco places one actress whose appearance is so unkempt and spotty that you immediately think of heroin. This is distri- this is a distressing, ugly vision of lust, a nightmare world of addiction where sex is just another high to be exploited and turned into cash by unscrupulous dealers. So, Je Brûlé de Partout is a morality tale, despite the sleazy imagery. In the film's major twist, we see Captain Marcos, the man who's top of the female trafficking tree, enjoying one of the fruits of his investment. The drugged girl is brought nude and compliant to his room to participate in a bisexual orgy. To his horror, it's his daughter, recently kidnapped by a pair of freelance procurers and sold unwillingly to his brothel. The twist is a tad too convenient. A lot rests on coincidence. But it just about works. Gébrelé de Parto's cinematic reveal sees Franco shining an accusing light on the turpitude of his characters. The message of the film not so different from the sort of water-cooler debates about drugs or prostitution that begin. How would you feel if it was your daughter? The fact that Franco tells this tale just after a cocktail special in which the same father-meets-daughter-sex scenario is played, not for moral critique but a moral enjoyment, suggests that these two films are located at critical fault line in Franco's psyche. It's the boundary between cruelty and pity, a place he seems drawn to again and again, turning the problem this way and that. And as a side, yeah, that's actually a really good point because that's what I was thinking when I was watching this. And uh, yeah, that's that's these two films are really interesting back to back. Among the film's flaws, there's a distinct lack of characterization for the hero of the hour, Al Pereira. <laughs> that's just what I just said, who mooches around silently for most of the film, hardly speaking a word until the last reel when he captures Jenny's father and hands him over to the police. There are some glaring continuity errors too, or maybe missing footage. For instance. One minute we see Lehi and Abra captured and thrown into the aphrodisiac dungeon. The next we see them at liberty again, breaking into the chateau where Robert and Flory are parting with Captain Marcos. Well, actually, in that defense, uh, Bridget Lehi looks kind of like messed up a little bit and looks like they kind of escaped. But yeah, they could have shown the scene of them escaping more because you just see them kind of outside already trying to find a way out. They go up a ladder and everything. So, But yeah. Uh, Susan Hemingway, who excelled as the virtuous young victim in Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun, is again perfectly cast as the abused innocent. Very true. Her character, Jenny, is leered at constantly in scenes such as the one in which she demurely pulls a toilet door closed, only for vivacious Didier Abois to pull it back open to watch her pee, before ordering her, with a curt gesture, to use the bidet and wash her pussy. As a character, she's purely a victim, blinking in confusion throughout, and it seems that Ginny is none too bright either. Despite discovering that her slave-trading father is responsible for her torment, she remains plastered to his lapel, even when the film's nominal hero, <clears throat> Alperaria, reveals the awful truth. I was expecting a final tumble into horror for the girl as it dawns on her that the depravity she suffered was caused by her money-grubbing father, but instead she hunkers down besides him without reacting to Pereira's revelations. It's a limp scene that sabotages what could have been a powerful climax, 
But even so, Gebrolet de Parto remains the nasty, sleazy, saving grace of the late period Robert de Nicelle productions. Amen. That's a good, good point. Good way to wrap it up. All right, Franco on screen. No appearance by Franco, unless he's a brothel customer hidden by the appalling video transfer. Yeah, uh, the transfer, I don't know about appalling video. I mean, it is not the greatest, but it's definitely, I've watched worse and more faded, so. And especially Franco films and prints. <clears throat> uh, music, J. Berlier de Parto enjoys what was by now a rare honor, an all-new Daniel White score unused in previous Franco films. White's accomplished jazz compositions alternately ling, lug, that's a good word, luguburious and manic play genuine variations on a theme. Another rarity for the cheaper Franco films in which music is generally a patchwork of available cues. The full ensemble pieces veer toward free jazz at times, while the central melody, a chromatic affair with some sly angles and surprises, is explored in various shades of gloom on baritone sax and cello. Soundtrack album, please. Yeah, it's cool. Like, he'll have, like, a theme, and then he'll play the theme on piano, like, say, and he'll play a slow version. And then another one, he'll play a little fast version. Then he'll take that same theme and just play it on like a saxophone or a trumpet and have it as one of the themes in the in a scene. Then he'll like combine them with drums and then that's another theme. Then he'll do like that same theme with a full uh, band and then it would turn to a freeform thing but still go back to it. And so yeah, very, very cool. I was watching that, catching that as I was taking my review and uh, noticing all the... Uh, ways he was taking the central theme and just reworking it with different instruments. Very, very cool. I like that. Very uh, classy. Uh, okay, locations. The central location, once again, for the third final time, I'm adding, is the Farol Hotel, F-A-R-O-L, in Cascias, Portugal. The quayside location, where Ginny's sex trafficker father gets into his car, is at 108 Ave Adam Carlos 1 in Cascius, immediately besides the Palacio de Quicadela de Cascius, it was previously seen in Voodoo Passion and reappears in Abrazones Sexuales de Una Mer Casada, 1980. So about a year from here, or two years from here. All right, <clears throat> Connections, another outing for Al Pereira this time played by stocky unknown Jean Ferrer. A far cry from previous Pereiras like the suave Howard Vernon or the puckish Jess Franco, Ferrer looks like an off-duty dock worker or a grumpy union leader or strangely cultural theorist Jean Berdoulard. Yeah, he does look like a grumpy union leader because he has like this big stogie in his mouth and like a little cabby cap with a fucking clip front and everything. It's funny. The theme of women kept in an artificially induced state of sexual stimulation takes on a much darker takes on much darker hues here than in the earlier Blue Rita, a similar story in which men instead of women were the victims. Blue Rita had a lightness of touch, a psychedelic good humor. Here the spectacle of women whooping and grunting and slobbering and helpless arousal takes on a sickening and distressing qualities. That's true. A major surprise comes in the form of an unexpectedly polymorphous four-way between Flora, Robert, Mel Rigo, Ginny, Hemingway, and a sex club customer who 
that's the guy with the mustache, who concludes with Robert screwing the male customer while Flora gets in on, gets it on with Ginny. The bisexual aspect is maintained in a later scene showing Uber trafficker Captain Marcos being ridden around nude on all fours by a whip-wielding Robert while Flora slobbers at his face. The guiding influence in this would appear to be Mel Rodrigo, who also appears in, who, who's actually the guy that plays guitar and all that stuff, who appears in Apollo de Fuego, made later the same year, which is also later two, fem- or two female spies in flowered panties, I think. And um, Franco's 79 saw an adaptation, Sinfonia Erotica. Gay or bisexual action was still unusual, but not entirely unknown at the time in ostensibly straight French porn. The prevailing urge to éparter les bourgeoisie led to all manners of variation until the 1980s video boom removed the element of surprise, putting the viewer in total control of what parts they watched and what they fast-forwarded. Among the swinging anything goes porno of the period are, and it gives a couple titles here, Fury Sexuales, which I own that, 76. Uh, well, that's by Alan Payette, who's one of the Franco collaborators. Uh, Serge Corbier's Dancy Chaloux de Jelly, and Jean Lure's Dilatation. Uh, depictions of gay or bisexual men turn up more frequently in Franco's work from here on, but it's not without reservations that I draw attention to the fact uh, we go from the polysexual antics of Je Brûlé de Partout to a, to a pair of weird old gay pervs exploiting a down-on-his-luck heterosexual teenager in La Chicas de Copacabana from the camp affections, literally, of Mel Rodrigo's character in Opuela de Fuego to the marriage-wrecking woman-hating limp-wristed fop he plays in Sinfonia Erotica. Once we're into the 1980s, a stream of camp stereotypes are trotted out frequently by Franco himself, who seemed to find playing a comedy poof most amusing. And that's from Stephen Thrower. All right, French theatrical release. Je Brûlé de Prateau opened at four cinemas in Paris on the 11th of April, 1979. The Amsterdam Saint Laurent. Uh, the Axis, the Scalia, and the Delambre Montepernese. Staying open on two screens the following week, and then surviving for another fortnight, playing on one screen only before closing its four-week run. In subsequent reappearances in Paris were few, compared to Elise Fontaut, but nevertheless did turn up here and there. For instance, at the Picks on July 4th, 1979, and the Mary on the 23rd of January, 1980. All right, other versions, sometimes reported under the working titles Rap de Nymphets and Dossiers Menures. There is reported, there is reputed to be a harder version of the film, which is not surprising, as scenes after scenes seem to head toward hardcore before swerving away. That's interesting. Uh, the rumor may, however, have its roots in the film Claire, 1983, created by Joe D'Amato, using footage from Je Brûlé de Parteau, Cocktail Special, and Elise Vontaut. Claire adds hardcore anal penetration close-ups to the sodomy scene in Je Brûlé de Parteau between Didier Abois and Susan Hemingway. Okay, so that's probably not them. It's just uh, insert or close-ups. But I wonder if it's in insert shots or what. 
Uh, who knows? So, yeah, that's what that is. All right, so... Putting glasses back on. So I can read my notes. All right, so... Yeah, that's the uh, review, or the information portion of the film. So... Um, Okay, so for this film, I was going to do a review with a friend, but uh, he unfortunately had to cancel due to uh, personal reasons and uh, didn't have the time to find an available copy to give to Kali to step in. So I'm going to go ahead and knock this one out myself um, and then uh, get back with people and do the next slew of films because those are a little easier to get for people too so that's always really important because these three films were a little more obscure I understand that and this period they're not the strongest Franco films but uh, yeah I, I definitely enjoyed the three for different reasons I think I like uh, of course uh, Cocktail Special and this one of course the most and then uh, the middle one uh, they do every one was whatever you know it's just a silly sex comedy so but yeah, so if you enjoy Franco or you enjoy uh, this podcast and all that, please consider donating either one time or multiple times. It's always much appreciated. Uh, let's see what else we want to say. You can find us, of course, on Facebook and Instagram under the Franco Observer Podcast. And you can download and subscribe, of course, Um Download, subscribe on your favorite listening platform. Tell a friend. Share the news of the Franco podcast. Let people know all about it. Uh, it's always good to get new ears and new eyes on Franco. So please feel free to spread the news if you enjoy what this show does. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, write to us, anything like that, please feel free. Our email address is francoobserver at yahoo.com. And let's see, I already told you about Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, we got a lot of cool stuff, I post there at least once or twice a week, or a couple times a week. So, alright, uh, hang out, and after the bumper music, you will hear my notes, the Franco list, and all the goodies on I Burn Everywhere. Buenas noches! Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans, Franco family. Uh, just got done watching um, I Burn Everywhere, uh, film 88 from Mr. Jess Jesus Franco, or Clifford Brown in this case. Um, yeah, this is a pretty cool film. Um, it's not as strong. I think it could have been, it could have been more character development, definitely with the Al Prairie character and um, go over all that. Uh, this is going to be a solo one, so of course the solo ones, uh, I don't have anyone to talk to, so it's uh, usually a little bit shorter, so instead of the usual, you know, 35 to 60 minutes, it's probably going to be under a half an hour or so. Alrighty, well, I'm going to do uh, the part like I normally do. I'm going to read the synopsis, and then uh, instead of asking my fellow reviewer what they thought of it, I will ask myself what I thought of it, and then just agree with myself or debate myself and uh, 
See what you think. So, all right, here we go. Synopsis. Pretty and naive teenager Ginny Goldstone enjoys a night of sexual abandon and... Okay, start over. Pretty and naive teenager Ginny Goldstone enjoys a night of sexual abandon with a predatory couple who then drug her and sell her to a sex ring. Next day, the female of the duo, Lorna, played by Brigitte Leahy, sees a newspaper report about the missing girl, revealing that she is the daughter of a rich businessman. Annoyed at having let the cash, this cash opportunity slip through their fingers without realizing her value, the couple try to blackmail the father, demanding a ransom for her safe return, while intending to welch on the deal. Ginny is drugged with an aphrodisiac gas and enrolled as a sex worker in a sleazy nightclub run by Procurus Madame Flora and her bisexual assistant Robert. Meanwhile, private investigator Al Pereira is tracking Lorna in search of the truth behind Ginny's disappearance. Lorna and her boyfriend overplay their hand. After attempting to make contact with Flora and the mysterious head of the slave ring, a man known only as Captain Marcos, they are overpowered and flung into the aphrodisiac gas chamber. Eventually they escape and, with Alpararia, manage to track the elusive Captain Marcos to a beautiful seafront villa, where he enjoys sadomasochistic sex with Madame Flora and Robert. When the new girl he's demanded for the orgy arrives from Madame Flora's, the captain is astonished to discover that it's his own daughter, Jenny. Dazed from the effects of the gas, she murmurs, Papa? Horrified at last by the wickedness of his trade, Mr. Goldstone resolves to quit. He leaves with his daughter, only for Alpararia, posing as his chauffeur, to escort him to the police. So, <clears throat> Mr. Jason Rudy, the man who has watched quite a few Franco films, uh, yeah, yeah, that that that'd be about ninety or so. Okay, ninety films. Um, what did you think of this film? Uh, I burn everywhere, or uh, yeah, I burn everywhere. Well, let's see. Um, I liked it. Uh, it's the third film from the trio that they did in the hotel. Uh, I recognize some of the rooms, reusing some of the rooms. Um, I noticed uh, they reused the bar. I'll talk about that when I go through this film. I kind of broke it down section by section, and I kind of go over that with everybody. Um, so, um, so yeah, let me just start from the top and work my way down and tell you what I thought of each part. So we start with um, the version that's out there. Actually, uh, as we record this, there's a, uh, I think it's Pulse video or something. It's uh, They're putting out a Bridget Leahy book. And I tried to go online to order the Blu-ray, but since I'm in America, I can't order it, I guess. Um, it doesn't ship here some some odd reason. But yeah, it's got, uh, there's like a disc they're printing out, like a Blu-ray, like two-disc thing. It's got like five of her films on there. Uh, Dark Mission, I Burn Everywhere are the two Franco films. And then like, uh, I think like two other films and like a documentary on there or something like that. So yeah, it, it looks cool. It's like about... Uh, U.S. dollar wise, it's about thirty bucks, twenty something bucks. But yeah, I just, for some reason I couldn't order it, so I'll try again, or maybe it'll be here in America easy. We'll see. So, 
Anyway, for sake of argument, this video uh, DVDR is from Monty Video Production uh, MVP, and um, we have once again uh, spoken opening credits like the last film. Um, they do everything um, that had opening credits spoken um, by voices, and the same with this one. It's a male and a female voice, and I think it's Jess and Lena is what the voice sounds like to me. Kind of listen to it close, and definitely sounds like Jess, and then I think it's Lena's voice. Maybe Brigitte Leahy, but I would think it's maybe Lena, because it might just been done in post. All right, um, we have a starts off with we see, uh, and actually I'm going to kind of go through the list as I do this since it's just me. Um, we start off the film with uh, uh, a club scene dancing. So, yeah, we see a dance club. So that's automatically one off the Franco list. And that is number eight, if you're counting at home. Number eight on the list is club scenes dancing. So, yeah, we have dancing in a club. We have the main character, Ginny, uh, played by um, Susan Hemingway. And she's in there disco dance, and, and she's being watched by this predatory couple, which I read earlier. And that's uh, Lorna and I believe Tom. And um, they watch the plan and kind of see what's going on. And then basically uh, Tom goes up and starts dancing with her. And Brigitte picks up this other guy. And they start dancing. And so they're kind of working their way in. And uh, I think it's the same disco from an earlier film. I think like Virgin Report or, or a film during the Dietrich cycle. Because I recognize the disco that they're dancing in. And I've seen it in at least one or two other Franco films. So that was kind of cool. Um, and also there's a disco song and then it goes to like this slow kind of piano disco song. Um, it's kind of cool. There's like a couple different songs in this scene. And then we have, uh, also number 12 on the list, mirror shots. We have these cool ceiling mirrors in the disco tech. So we have uh, number eight, number 12 already off the list. So those are two down. Um, then the man, uh, the boyfriend guy, Tom, he leaves with suit with, uh, Jenny, and they go to the hotel because uh, <clears throat> he's going to have sex with her. So, uh, And, of course, it's the same hotel from the last three films. And Brigitte uh, goes with the other guy, and he says, oh, I, I, I can't do it in my house because I live with my mom. And she goes, oh, that's okay. I know a hotel nearby. So uh, he gives her his car keys, and she gets in his car. And while he's getting ready to get into his car, she takes off and steals his car. And he's like, hey! And so she automatically steals a car right off the bat so you can tell she's a thief. And, uh, so yeah, so the man, uh, Tom and, uh, Jenny, or I'll, I'll call her Susan cause I've written out a Susan, <clears throat> Susan Hayward. So they basically, uh, he takes her to the hotel room and she's a virgin and, uh, she has to go pee first. So she goes and goes pee and he watches her and right there, uh, they have a scene where he opens the door and watches her pee. And then we have, uh, number 25 on the link kinks because she mentions uh that he likes to watch um let's see where we at here 25 i didn't write it down there okay um but yeah uh oh no there it is um watching her pee so she says yeah he goes i like to watch girls pee and she says yeah i do too when i was a kid i used to like to watch boys pee and that was like my thing and uh, he watches her pee, and then he makes her wash her vagina off in the bidet, and he watches her the whole time, so he's, like, getting off on that. 
Uh, so then you have um, the man in his hotel room with her, and he kind of takes her to the bed forcefully, and she tells him, well, I'm a virgin. I, I can't have sex that way. She said, but, you know, you can always do the other side. And so she basically tells him, yeah, you can basically fuck me up the ass because um, I'm a virgin, and I guess so she's Catholic. And so she believes that, you know, she'll just give up her booty, and she'll still be virgin, and everything's okay in the eyes of the Lord. So he uh, starts plugging away in her butt, and he has anal sex with her. And so he had the first nudity in the film is about eight minutes in. And, of course, it's her lower half. And then he opens her shirt up. And you see her boobs. But, yeah, you see her vagina and her butt first before you see her boobs. And Susie Hemingway, she's very attractive. But, of course, no match for Brigitte Leahy, who's so statuesque and just perfectly like a, a, a god would make a woman as a statue would be her. So, um Basically, uh, Brigitte shows up in the room and joins in uh, as the guy's on top of her screwing her. Uh, Brigitte comes in, takes her clothes off, and climbs on top of the guy and kind of like pushes down on him to get more force so he can get deeper into her. Then she climbs on top, straddles him, starts riding him as he's screwing uh, uh, Susan Hayward's character. And then uh, they go to climax for him, and then... You see the next uh, thing, she's sleeping, and the couple talk, and he tells her she's a virgin. And then we find out that they are uh, kidnappers, and that they call this lady Maria, and um, who played Sarah in the last film. It was kind of cool. So yeah, talk about that in the beginning. This has a lot of the same cast, and we get people playing different roles in this one. So yeah, basically Lorna calls uh, Maria, um, who's the in-between for this prostitution deal and she tells her she's a virgin and she tells her she can give her $10,000 boom 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 and then they chloroform the girl and knock her out and take her and drop her off to the uh, Maria and her people so they put her aboard this kind of slave ship and uh, you see uh, body of water of course on the list number one body of water and you see number three boats and uh, sailboats kind of in the background. So you have one, two, and three right off the bat. And that's off the list there. Uh, you have a nice lighting effect in the scene where they're kind of moving the light back and forth over their face. Very depressing, downworldly scene. It's supposed to be on top, inside the boat, but you could tell they filmed it like in the basement of the hotel or just a small dark room to simulate the inside of the boat, which is pretty cool because they do, uh, it, it's a passable effect and they knock all this off in like six days filming. So. Looks good. Um, so yeah, they have like this. The piano song plays on the slave ship. You see, um, we see Adia Vargas plays Maria, and Esther Studer. So we have two Franco regulars here as two of the um, kidnapped victims forced into prostitution. Um, then you have a saxophone version of the earlier piano song, which is cool. So the, the this really good soundtrack. Daniel White uh, takes all the tunes and does different variations of them on different instruments. So it's very cool. Uh, then we have um, sound effects number five, jungle sound effects. But we have a lot of seagulls. Just things. Just I think a lot of it's real seagulls. But then they also recorded them and just dubbed over them because there's like tons of seagulls that drench out the sound on this scene. Uh, then we have number nine, jazz music on the list. We have uh, the really cool jazz scene that goes through here. Music, kind of like a Miles Davis or a um, John Coltrane type, just uh, new, just jazz explosion, kind of a free form deal. It's really good. Um, then we see the four women on the beds that are there um, before the new girls are brought in, or before um, Hemingway and, and uh, 
Dia Vargas and, and Studer are brought in. Um, and we see gas pumped into the basement as the new girls are brought in to join the other four there. So now we got about seven or eight girls, uh, women that are now in this uh, kind of sex slave dungeon basement place. Um, and then we have, let's see, number 14, magic. Oh, yeah. So then, so we have this aphrodisiac gas that's pumped into the room, and it makes all these girls uh, really turn on and erotic and and, and Indulging in each other, so we see number fourteen on the list, the magic tongue scene, and we see uh, Dia Vargas and them just licking the nipples and the tongue extending and into the vagina and all over the place. Tons of oral, so yeah, a lot of oral in this film. Uh, a lot of naked women writhing and sweating and licking and all that stuff. So see a lot of that. And since you see that, you see number six on the list, chained up person, but it's a tied up person. You have one of the gals that's tied up to the bed while the other ones are jamming around and writhing and diving on the new victim that comes into the place. So then we have, with uh, a different variation of the title song, of course, um, and we have more of that. And we have number seven. Okay, so then we cut to the bar from the last film. Now we go to basically it's a bar in a little hotel somewhere. It's supposed to be a different location. And we see uh, basically a stage show. So number seven, dance scenes on stage stripping. But it's like a sex show with a man and a woman. And uh, there's an orgy going on at the bar with some of the women from uh, the slave trade. And uh, But it's the same bar from the last film. Same hotel from They Do Everything. And uh, we see that bar again and some of the same people in there. And we see the mustached guy from the last film. And... Uh, Mel Rigo and a few and Adia Vargas, a few of the girls are naked in there, and they're basically having like an orgy going on. It's like a sex club, and uh, that's the prostitution place, of course. So uh, we have that going on, number seven and fifteen. Oh yeah, and then there's a red light on the uh, dance scene on stage as well. So we have number seven dance scenes on stage stripping, and number fifteen red light is taken care of in that sequence. Um, then we have the characters introduced um, from all three films. It's actually um, um, Marky, uh, Marius Clavier as Madame Flora's manservant and Madame Flora, which is Benny Sousa, which is funny because they're uh, Eugenie and Christian in the first film. Uh, the victim and the uh, and the uh, or the antagonist and protagonist. And so it's funny. So in here they're like a couple. And... Uh, and she's the bad, evil heel, and he's her uh, effeminate kind of manservant. Um, so, yeah, we see them in here, and um, Flora and somebody enter with Ginny uh, and Robert enter the room. Robert, okay, so Robert is him, yeah. So uh, Flora's with uh, the mustache guy, and Ginny and Robert enter the room, and he has sex and uh, with uh, Susan and takes her virginity pays the money for it and then uh lorna and her boyfriend tom finally arrived by boat to investigate um the missing girl because they want to uh get the ransom on the woman of course calling the colonel and demanding the ransom so now they go after because they know where they're being delivered so they go to try to steal the girl away and but they're followed unknowingly by uh detective alperaria who is kind of just lingering in the background of all these shots. He just kind of follows everybody through, and he's just kind of there trailing. So I guess 
he's an inept cop, but he's not an inept, inept cop because, I mean, he gets the job done in the end. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. So I guess he would be part of the inept cop number 23, possibly, because uh, everybody else is silly in this. Um, so, okay, yeah, we have Lorna and him ride by boat, followed by a prairie. And um, we see a scene again of all the women on the beds, gas pumped in again. Uh, and then we have number 12 on the scene, mirror shots. There's these cool mirrors in the basement. Uh, Anna Dia Vargas gets up and starts rubbing herself on the mirror and kisses herself and basically has sex with herself, uh, dry humps the mirror and rubs herself and kisses and just goes goes for a full scene with the mirror, which is kind of a cool sequence. Um, and, uh, yeah, so then we have that. Also, number 14, magic tongue scenes and the mirror scene together. So you have number 12 and 14 on the list in that scene. Then you have, after that, uh, Flora and Christian wake up together uh, a.m. time after uh, having sex, of course, with uh, Susan losing her virginity. They had her a few times, they say, and with that guy and a whole big thing. So they wake up, and uh, they start their business of what they're going to do. And then, in the meantime, the servant, Mel and Adia... Uh, oh, yeah, so, basically... Um, um, Dia Vargas starts going crazy from all the gas being pumped in. It's too much for her. So uh, Flora is informed by um, Mel Rodrigo's character that, hey, man, this woman's going wild, and we need to do something about her. And she says, well, I'll let you take her and tame her and break her and have sex with her and, and try to fuck her until she just calms down. So he basically uh, has sex with her brings her in and kind of whips her and stuff and she has the uh it's in the scene's interesting because she's wearing the long these she's wearing these long black leather boots and i recognize those boots so i remember that they always talk about lena and jess had a trunk that he carried around from film to film of different props and those black boots were in there and those boots were worn by soldat and like uh eugenie Desaad, i think and uh female vamp or uh Imperos Lesbos and quite a few other films, those long black boots. So I think they're the ones that uh, Idea of Argus is wearing in this scene. So uh, that caught my eye. So uh, that's kind of a cool little thing. Hopefully that's true. Um, and then we see, uh, after that sequence, we see the same bar orgy, uh, but a different stage show with Christian, that guy, or guy Christian, um, Marius Clavier, actually, Madame Flora's manservant. He's all in like this glitter and doing a interesting kind of a. Uh, posing of like a statue and this woman's underneath them and doing all this different stuff to him and he's just motionless and stretching like a giant peacock or something. It's a very odd scene. So, yeah, they have that routine going on the stage. And then um, 22 is... Uh, oh, yeah. So then we see uh, Brigitte Leahy and her boyfriend walk down a spiral staircase. So we get our spiral staircase shot, number 22. And, of course, it's the same one from the hotel that we saw in the last film. So it's the same spiral staircase, but different people in this one. Uh, and then we have Lorna, a yeah, guy that arrived at the bar orgy. Of course, they walk down the staircase, and they go to meet Flora. And, unfortunately, uh, they ask about her and the situation. And the guys go, yeah, we'll take you back here to meet her. And uh, Brigitte and her boyfriend are beat up by Mel and Christian and another guy. They beat the shit out of him. And uh, then the Flora dumps the knocked out man, uh, Brigitte Leahy's boyfriend, into the guest room with all the uh, kidnapped women. And she says, this is your treat, women. You can do with him as you want. You can fuck him. He's yours. Do with him what you want. And all the women dive onto him and attack him and just keep having sex with him until he 
tries to they basically try to fuck him to death and um which is kind of a saw touch which is cool use up all his juices and just keep going and going until he dies and then Lorna's KO'd and uh they decide to uh Flora decides to rape her with a strap on dildo and with uh, Mel and Christian are there they tie her up so of course number six tied up scene and yeah they tie her up and Lorna basically penetrates her with a, a giant strap on dildo uh, okay, and then we have, uh, of course, one, two, and three again, body of water, sailboats, and boats, as Alperaria waits for Ginny's dad to arrive. Uh, so this the guy that's in charge of the operation. He shows up, and um, Alperaria, of course, sneaks and trails him, follows him to the place, and as he goes in, he kind of sneaks up around some rocks down by the seaside and sneaks his way in, because, of course, he's Alperaria, master detective. And uh, the colonel in there is talking to Flora, and it's interesting because I live in California. And uh, he talks about how he's going to sell the business and all the problems going by and his daughter being kidnapped and how he's so heartbroken and how he wants to see his daughter again. And they've really done wrong with this last operation and this and that and how he wants to go to California and he's going to sell the business and go to California. And we have nothing out here in California. So he keeps mentioning that. I thought it was kind of cool because this is like over in uh, – I guess um, Spain or whatever it was. So this kind of actually, uh, uh, where actually is. Oh yeah, France. So, so yeah, big difference. So yeah, it's kind of cool. Mentions that up, and we have Lauren and her boyfriend basically sneak out of the place and they go up a ladder and they try to find their way where they're at and they sneak into a room and they go down a staircase and they're caught again. So that whole sequence is pretty just boring, just padding. Um. So finally we see uh, the guy, the main boss, and he's having sex with Flora and Chris, or, and the manservant again. So uh, the one kind of feminine guy is on this older, it's really an interesting scene because uh, this older kind of fat guy, like in his 50s, he's on all fours. And you have uh, Chris, the uh, feminine manservant on glitter riding him naked on his back while... Uh, he's going down on the flora woman so it's very 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 interesting visual of those three and they're getting ready to have him have sex with the new person and of course the new person brought in is his daughter so he sees her and freaks out and realizes oh fuck okay well this is over so which is different because in cocktail special the father and daughter have sex and in this film the daughter's brought in and the father realizes that he needs to stop what he's doing and that that's the end of the line and that's his sin for having done what he's done and it's all his fault. So it's interesting. It's a more of a redemption on this one even though he's caught by Alperia. So anyway, so yeah, I'm jumping ahead. So uh, he figures out what's going on and he tells his guys, all right, I'm taking my daughter out of here. We're leaving. I'm going with Florida. With Flora, you wipe out all traces, which means burn the place down kill everybody here get rid of everybody so that's what i took it as so basically it is inept cops because you hear gunshots going off so they basically go through and kill everybody and wipe the place out so by the time uh the father and daughter get in the car and leave and he tells the daughter all what happened and how it's his fault and al Pereira was driving the car the whole time as he knocks out the chauffeur we see knocked out in the passenger seat and Al's driving the car, and he tells the father, well, you're going to go to jail now, and I'm taking you to America because you have no connections there, and they'll try you, and the justice system may be just as bad, but you will still pay for your crime. But 
how can he pay for his crime when the whole operation's wiped out and all of his places are uh, wipe wipe all wipe out all traces. So, and I think on the Franco list. So yeah, we have body of water, sailboats, boats. We have palm trees. I forgot to mention that. We have the uh, sound effects, of course, the doves, number six, chained up person, tied up person. Seven, dance scenes on stage stripping. Yes, we do. Uh, club scenes dancing starts off the film. Number nine, jazz music. Yes. Number 10, excessive zooms. And number 11, out of focus shots. Um, a little bit, not too much. Some of the zooms on the sex scenes, but that's about it. Number 12, mirror shots. Yes, we have a few in the brothel, in, uh, in, the, in that dungeon room, and a few other sequences. Um, mind control theme. Yeah, the poison gas is the mind control, basically. I forgot to count that one. So, yeah, that poison gas is the mind control. Uh, number 14, magic tongue scenes. I mentioned that, most definitely. Uh, no Lena, though, but still magic tongues. Uh, 15, red lights. Yes. Uh, 16, sheepskin rug. No. Or masturbation with a C item. Uh, no letter C item, but lots of masturbation. So a lot of writhing and rubbing. So, uh, 17 mad scientist, uh, not really brothel owner and evil people, but no typical mad scientist unless they created the poison gas. Maybe 18 fish tank shots, negative 19 talking parrot or talking animals, negative 20 in credits. Yes or no. Yes. It says Finn F I N and that's uh, 78 minutes. Uh, 21 handwritten notes. No. 22, Sparrow Staircase. Yes. 23, Inept Cops. Yeah, I mentioned that. 24, Belly Chains. That's negative. 25, Kinks. Mentioned a few. Uh, 26, Great Headboards. None on this film. Same hotel, so no good headboards. And finally, number 27, Fear or Desire. Uh, it's all about desire in this one, baby. Because he basically, uh, he talks the the end, the, the desire of the father for cash and profits was the thing that brought his ruin. So, yeah, and he talks about that at the very end. It's kind of cool. It's like his little coda and uh, it's like a little note for, yep, yeah, this is the rule of the film. It's desire. Because, like I said, once again, his desire for cash and profit brought his downfall through the devious and nefarious means that he uh, accured those means. So, yeah, that was his deal. So, that was my little wrap-up on Je uh, Brûlé de Parto. And, uh, yeah, I liked it. Um, it's going to come out on Blu-ray uh, as part of that five-disc set. So, I'd say check it out. Um, it is X-rated, but it's not as graphic as the other two films. Um, there's, like, one maybe, like, porn shot from Rear when he's having sex with the girl from behind and you see like his butt and her butt and Brigitte that's kind of a gross shot the the rear porn shot but other than that it's like all pretty tame when it's like a lot of cutaways and they don't really show anything too graphic or anything so uh, that aspect of the three this is the least explicit so um, and it's probably the best film out of the three because it's more of a Franco film even though the first one, Cocktail Special, is a retelling of Eugenie, and I like that one as well. But, uh, yeah, no, this one in Cocktail Special, I'd say, or maybe neck and neck, but I liked Cocktail a little bit more because of the bad soundtrack. But as a film-wise, this is definitely a better film, and it's got Al Pereira, and that's pretty cool. So even though Jean Ferrer, he played him, and he's not very good. He's kind of a stocky, grumpy-looking dude. 
So, yeah, and it's going to come out on Blu-ray, like I said. So, yeah, check it out. You think you might dig it, especially if you're a Franco completist and a Franco fan. And if you are a Franco fan, you know all about the podcast, um, and I gave you all the information on the top half. But be quick, donate, download, subscribe, tell a friend, write us at FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. Find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, when it's no chance.